Welcome to Reality. If we haven't met, my name is Austin, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege today of continuing our series in the Psalms of Ascent. Um, We're in Psalm 125 today, Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read that for us to kick us off. Uh, The words are on your handout if you'd like to follow along. So Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but to those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to us this afternoon? Lord, you say your word does not return to you void. And Lord, as we sow the seeds of your word in our heart, Lord, would you plant it and make it bear fruit in our lives this week? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the psalm, it opens up um, in the first three verses. There's promise, and then it concludes with prayer. So we're going to kind of work through this. Promise followed by prayer. So just we're going to start right off in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. So there's a comparison going around, right, between the people of God and the dwelling place of God. And the comparison point is of the unshakable nature of both of them. Both are immovable. Both are eternally secure. For those who trust in God, our outcome is secure. Come whatever may, it's a promise. Trust in God leads to security. So to to recognize, right, that our security is found in God is also to recognize that our uh, security does not come from other things. Not from... Other, you know, maybe like security, I was trying to think of like what are forms of security that we have, right? Like security systems on our homes or like your little car alarm that goes off. That's probably like the worst security system ever because people just ignore those. Um, Not a financial safety net, not multiple degrees from the prestigious institutions all over this city. Um, None of those things, right, are actual eternal security. Those things aren't necessarily bad in themselves, but they shouldn't divert our trust from God. Uh, for true security in exchange for a cheap imitation. Um, another way of thinking of trusting is putting, what are you putting your confidence in? Where do you put your confidence? Are you putting your confidence in God or in other things? And I think perhaps chief among the things that we put our confidence in is often our own abilities, our abilities to control our life, to control our destinies, to think that we can be kind of the ruler and the architect of our own existence. But to rely upon God, to trust in God, means that we acknowledge that we are not primarily in control of our lives, that we are not the primary architects. We relinquish our self-rule for God-rule. Another part of this promise is that uh, this immovability or unshakability, it turns out uh, Microsoft Word does not think that is a real word, but I'm going to use it a few times, unshakability, because I couldn't think of a better way to phrase it. Um, it's It's not based on circumstance. This isn't based on circumstance, but on God. So the context of this psalm is Israel returning from exile. Um, And although their exile is over, the foreign occupation in their land is not. 
they're still being ruled by foreign governors and for, foreign empires. Uh, verse 3 actually clues us into that. It says that the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. It will not remain, but presently it still does in the context of this psalm. It's a reality still that the Zion that they're returning to, the Jerusalem that they're going back to, is still under rule by a foreign nation and by a king who does not fear God. This is a promise that it won't always be this way, but also it's a promise that those who trust in God can be unshaken even in the context of less than ideal circumstances. This isn't just a promise for good times, it's a promise for all times. For those that trust in God, circumstances cannot erode the ultimate security that comes from him. Psalm 46 uh, illustrates this reality. If, if you do have a Bible or your phone here, you can scroll it over to Psalm 46. Um, the first seven verses, I think, is a good illustration of this idea. They say, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. This is Zion. God is with her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. But the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I think we know that God's people aren't immune from the instability of the world, right? We experience the tottering, uh, the rising and falling of the world around us. But this psalm declares that even if the earth were to fall into the sea, those who dwell in God, those who rely upon him, will not fall because God is with them, because God holds on to them. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be shaken, but will endure forever. Uh, this also made me think of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is Jesus' longest recorded teaching in, in the scriptures that we have. It's like his like one sermon that we have like the full, kind of like the full manuscript of um, in Matthew 5 through 7. And so he leaves us in that sermon with the final, with one final picture, and that is the story of the wise and foolish builders. In Matthew 7, it says this: it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So in this story, to kind of tie it in to our text today, we can equate trusting God with hearing the words of Jesus and then putting them into practice, living in God's way. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And then not trusting God on the flip side is hearing Jesus' words and then not putting them into practice, kind of living in our own way, living as seems good to us. But what's interesting is the actual circumstances for these two builders end up the same, right? The one who builds his house on Jesus' teaching, still experiences the rain, the floods, the winds, the storms. But the house that's on the rock of Jesus' word is the one that withstands the storms. And the house on sand does not. When we build our lives upon Jesus, when we seek more and more to align our lives with his calling and his way, 
we have greater and greater ability to withstand the storms of life because they will come. We're not promised to be immune to them. They will come. But those who trust in God will not be shaken. They will endure. So this is the first promise from the psalm. Um, and then there's another one here in verse 2. Uh, verse 2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. So the comparison here between God's people and the terrain continues. First it was Mount Zion, now it's the mountains around Jerusalem. This image, right, of being encircled or God kind of encompassing his people, it implies protection. So first it was stability, now protection. God encircles his people with his very presence. I feel like the image is like, it's like a pretty clear image, right? Like being encircled by something, like having something around us. I mean, I kind of had the idea of like a roundabout and some like roundabouts have like a big uh, like grass situation. Some of them are overgrown. Some of them have flowers in them. There's one near our house that it was like super overgrown. It was like cattails in there and then some group came in and like mowed it down and planted flowers. And now there's a big sign for the Rotary Club in the Rotary. I thought that's kind of funny. Um, but it's like the idea of right, the grass in the middle is us and then God is like surrounding us with his presence. Um, but I want to illustrate this as well with a story from the Old Testament, um, from 2 Kings. I think this will give us a better idea of exactly what it means that God surrounds his people. So from 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 8, it says, The king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, this is Elisha in this, in this time, um, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram, and he summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king, uh, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. It's a pretty good security system, right? Like just direct line to like the king that's attacking you. We're just going to have that on speed dial. We know exactly where they're going. Verse 13, he says, Find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night and surrounded, surrounded is our key word here, they surrounded the city. So it's interesting here, right? The, the king of Aram wants to attack Israel, but every time he wants to do that, he's thwarted, right? Elisha tells him, tells the king not to go that way. But now he's like, all right, I'm going to take, I'm like cut off the head of the dragon here. I'm going to go straight for the prophet. And instead of telling him, God kind of lets this happen. He lets the army come and surround Elijah, Elisha. I just think that's interesting that he doesn't key him off to this. Verse 15, the story continues. When the servant of the man of God got up, and went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Okay, are you sure? Like, there's two of us. It takes more than two people to surround a city. I think you need at least three, probably hundreds. Um, 17, Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around, surrounding Elisha. 
It's these horses and chariots of fire. These are the armies of God. And Elisha has the eyes to see them. I feel like for us, we probably, at least for me, like we would probably don't relate to Elisha in that story. We're more like the servant here of like, I don't see anything here. Like what's going on? We're kind of in this desolate situation. We often don't have eyes to perceive where the spirit is at work, what God is doing, how he is moving. But just because we don't perceive it doesn't mean it isn't a reality. We look around, right? The situation is bleak. How are we going to get out of this? Elisha sees what we don't. Elisha sees this reality that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so God surrounds his people. But it's notable here, what Elisha does, he prays, and the Lord opens the eyes of a servant. I think it's fair to say that we can pray for God to give us this type of sight, to give us discernment to see the world as it really is, to kind of see beyond just the physical realities that are at hand and see into uh, the, the spiritual realities, right? The powers and the principalities that work in the world to see where God is moving and the things that he's doing. It can be really easy, right, to get bogged down in the actual physical world, but, right, we believe in a God who is spirit, right, who is unseen, and so there are greater things that work in the world than just what we see. Paul prays this in Ephesians 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, and so we can pray, like, Lord, open, open our eyes to, to perceive you, to see you, to hear from you. Can we, may we grow in the ability to perceive your presence with us and around us, protecting us, working for our good. May we see that the, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, you surround us. And I want to wrap up here this first kind of portion of the Psalm, the promises part, um, by drawing just like a through line between those two verses. The word forever shows up both in verse 1 and verse 2. And so both of these promises, they are true, right, in the temporal present. They're true right now in the world, like in our circumstances presently. But they're also true eternally. And we would miss a big element of this if we weren't to, to look at that. Because God promises, right, like obviously we're still going to face instability and, and challenging circumstances in the present. But eternally we have this hope that is unshakable that one day we won't face these things. That in the end... God will make all things new, that there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more mourning or crying, that God will make all things new. Jesus talks about this as well in John 10 um, when he reveals himself as the good shepherd of the sheep. Um, He says those who trust him listen to his voice and walk in his ways. In John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So nothing, no one ever can ever snatch us out of the hand of God. We unshakably and eternally belong to God. We're protected, we're secure. Even if things in this life are like tumultuous and we're going through it, we can know that God is with us, that our eternity is secure. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be shaken, but endure forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people now and forever. So we're going to move into the final two verses of this psalm, kind of looking at the promises of one and two in the context of verse three. Um, From the promise, the psalmist then moves into prayer in verse four and five. And the prayer goes like this. It says, Lord, do good to those who are good to those who are upright in hearts. But to those, but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. 
So the psalmist's response to God's promises is to pray. Walter Kaiser says that the promises of God were not meant to eliminate the need for prayer. Instead, they were meant to teach us what we ought to pray for. God's promises should teach us how to pray, not to eliminate our need for prayer. And the prayer here is for God to do good to those who are good. Super generic, right? Like, do good to those who are good. That's like, it kind of, I feel like if we're used to praying really specific prayers, it kind of feels a bit of like a cop-out, like, just, like, bless them. Period. But this shows us, right, that those really generic prayers are good, that God responds when we don't exactly know how to pray. Like, be, do good to those who are good. Bless them is like a pretty good prayer. If that's like all you know, if they just like be with them, be with me, like whatever it is. Like we can pray specifically, but God also responds to it when we pray really, really generic things. Um, but also, one of, so one of the things, all right, let me slow down here. Um, verse four and five, all right. So language geek in me kind of got, got going here. And I was looking at, at verse four and five and I tried to hold off on like doing too much like language grammar stuff in the first few verses, but I'm gonna really go into it here. So I'm gonna go on a little tangent. I think it's helpful, so stick with me here. Um, the first, so verse four and five, they have a really interesting construction. So right, you can use this anytime you're reading the Psalms or you're reading poetry in the Old Testament, like most of the prophets are, po- are, are poetry. Um, they use this thing called parallelism. And if you're like an English major and you're like, duh, parallelism, not a big deal. Pardon me, but I, I, I learned this recently, so I, I kind of like it. Um, so the first line, so verse four uses this thing called synonymous parallelism, where the first line and the second line work together to basically say the same thing, right? Do good to those who are good. And he kind of clarifies, right? He clarifies who are those that are good? Those who walk upright in heart. Those aren't saying two different things. Those are saying the same thing. And then it uses this antithetical parallelism with the start of verse five. It draws this contrast to the opposite or the opposite of those who are good and those who are upright in heart is those who turn to crooked ways. So he's like saying the same thing three different times. He's not saying three different things. This is all like elucidating the same point. So next time you're reading the Psalms and you see this, you see two lines that basically say the same thing or things that say exactly the opposite, be like, oh, I know what that is. Austin said this is the same thing. I don't need to be confused as to how these are similar or different. These are like trying to reiterate the same point. Just tuck it away. And when you find it useful again, pull it back out, and that'll be helpful. All right, there we go. Um, so this is what's going on here. There's this, there's this parallel structure, and so it helps us to get a better understanding of what exactly it is to me, what exactly it means when, it, when he says, do good to those who are good. Because right, like the word good is super generic, right? We use good all the time. I had a good, I had a good lunch, I hope you had a good day. It's good and hot in here. I know you maybe wouldn't say that. Um, it's a very, it's a very like generic word, and you moved upright, and you're like, oh, that's like an overly religious word. Like, I don't know the last time I've used the word upright in a normal conversation to describe a person. Like, maybe I, I you know, I would say like, oh, that Emmanuel, he's such an upright guy. Like, I would say that, but I don't, right? Like, it's not, you don't use that word. So it's helpful to have multiple layers of this. Oh, like those who turn to crooked ways, that's the opposite. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Like. We know, like Jesus said, like, walk on the narrow path, like, follow in my way. Like, okay, it's a little bit about the way that we live. Um, so then when I looked into the word upright a little bit, um, it also can be, translate, can be translated smooth, level, straight, or direct. And so when you put these together, right, parallel to crooked ways, 
you can kind of see, all oh, right, walking in the straight way. Those who are good are those who walk in Jesus' straight way. Those who follow the smooth, straight, level paths as contrasted to the crooked, bumpy, and winding paths. And I feel like this is helpful. I kind of got excited about this um, because I think it, it helps us tie into the idea of the Psalms of Ascent as a whole. Right? These are songs for the journey, right? They're going up on these pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship God. They're songs for like the journey of faith as we go through this life. And so walking on a path, right, is like a journey type type of term. And we can walk on straight paths or crooked paths. We can walk on paths that lead to life and that lead to Jesus, that lead to following him more and becoming more like him. Or we can walk on crooked paths of the world and what in kind of our own inclinations that don't lead towards life, that lead towards the other direction, that lead towards um towards the evildoers, I forgot verse five here, that lead towards destruction. So my conclusion here, the point of all this, all right, you're probably wondering what is he talking about. Um, the psalmist's prayer here is for God to do good towards those who walk in his ways. Bless those who follow him on the journey. And to those who turn aside to crooked ways, to evil, to injustice, to the deceptions of our own heart, he will banish with the evildoers. He will put away from his presence. And so here's where I think it kind of ties back into the beginning. It's trust. Walking in Jesus' straight paths means walking in greater trust of God. And walking on crooked paths is walking in trust of ourselves and things that are not God. Our journey of following Jesus on the straight path is a journey of growing in trust. I think that's a really tangible, for me, that's like a much more tangible way to hold on to it. Like, what does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to walk in God's way? Walking in God's way is trusting him more and more with the things in our lives. I think Proverbs 3 ties this in. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. When we walk in the straight path that Jesus leads us, we walk in the straight path that Jesus leads us when we trust God. So my question is, like, where are we struggling? Where are we struggling to trust God? There may have been ways that we've seen ourselves grow in trust over the years or even recently that we've seen ourselves become more and more surrendered and uh, given over to God in certain things. But where, even this week, like, where do we need to trust him more? What are things that are going on that we need to surrender to him? What are the things that we're looking to instead of God for our trust that we can give over to him. I put um, a couple of questions on the handout for our reflection time, and I wanted to amend them. I was thinking about today, and I wanted to change them, but I already printed the handout. Um, and I actually was like, maybe I'll remember to say this, maybe I won't, but I, wanna, I feel like I've set up this kind of dichotomy between like, where have you trusted God and where have you not trusted God? And I feel like it's not that black and white. It's not this yes or no, check or X. Um, I'm going to, like, scrap those questions. You can, like, black them out or pretend like they're not there. Um, if you want to use them, I think the question would be better as, like, where have you seen yourself grow in trust of God, and where do you need to grow? Where do you see as a place, even right now, that you need to grow in trusting God, where you can become more and more surrendered to God in your life? I think that kind of gets us out of a, I am or I'm not, right? We're on this path of, of growing in greater awareness of our trust in him. All right, so those who trust in God are like Mount Zion. They cannot be moved. They're unshakable. Those who journey along, Jesus, along with Jesus in his straight paths cannot be shaken. 
that's kind of it. Like God, those who trust him by following him on his straight paths. That's what we're aiming for in this sermon series. That's what we're, we're thinking about in these Psalms of Ascent, that we trust God more and more as we journey with him more and more. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word.